What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. This is the last week to apply to the Heart of Healthcare Grant Challenge. Semi-finalists will get $2,500 plus a spot on the podcast, and our grand prize winner will walk away with $50,000 and a full episode featuring your organization. Learn more at theheartofhealthcarepodcast.com. Today's episode is going to be a good one. I'm talking to whistleblower Wendell Potter, Following a 20-year career in corporate public relations, Wendell left his executive position at Cigna, one of the nation's largest health insurers, to show the world the dark inner workings of the insurance industry. He has testified before Senate and House committees, briefed several members of Congress and their staffs, has become a New York Times best-selling author on the topic, and recently helped produce a documentary titled American Hospitals Healing a Broken System. Wendell, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. (laughs) Let's start by talking about the industry you started your career in, health insurance. Uh, We've been talking about this a lot on the podcast, and I want to know, are we the only nation with private for-profit health plans, or are we just the only nation that doesn't mind that they generate billions of dollars of profit while Americans go bankrupt trying to pay for life-saving care? (laughs) You know, we are the only country on the planet that I know of. Uh, certainly the only developed country, uh, a rich country that has uh, handed over our healthcare system to for-profit health insurance companies. There are some countries in Europe that uh, rely on private health insurers, but they operate on a nonprofit basis. They're much more regulated than they are in the U.S., much more standardized. So we're alone out there in the way that we pay for health care, and uh, we're certainly suffering the consequences in so many mm. different ways. Yeah. You recently wrote about executive compensation at health insurance companies. And one stat that stood out to me is the health plan Molina Health, where more than 80% of the revenues come from Medicaid. So our tax dollars and the CEO last year made, I I literally had to read this a few times, $181 million. Sometimes it feels like health insurance companies are a black hole sucking money right out of our system while America remains very, very sick. What do you make of this? Well, I make out of this that, uh, as I've said before, uh, these companies know one thing and they care about one thing, and that is making Mm. money, making money for their top executives and their shareholders. And uh, we have most people in this country, even in our public plans now, Medicare and Medicaid, enrolled in a private plan, uh, mostly operated by for-profit companies. 
So mm -hmm. uh, when you have that situation, uh, you, you're just set up to have uh, increasing healthcare cost, premiums that continue to go up, taxes that go up to pay these companies. Uh, and uh, they're voracious. They have uh, no intention of doing anything but grow if they possibly can. Uh, and we've seen the emergence of seven large for-profit companies, many of them, uh, that just deal with public programs now. Humana recently, where I used to work, announces even getting out of the commercial insurance business and focusing exclusively on the public programs, Medicare mm -hmm. Advantage in particular. So that's where, that's where we are. And uh, mm -hmm. we are paying uh, well more than twice as much on a per capita basis for health care getting far less for it than any other country in the world. Yeah, far less. One um, one of our followers on Twitter, Jamie Stockton, wanted me to ask you if you think insurance will always be tied to employment or if there's a way to migrate away from that system. There is a way. Uh, whether there's will is a different matter entirely. And uh, the insurance industry would resist that, even those uh, that uh, are, are not even strongly in that business would resist it. But uh, the uh, majority of people who get their coverage through their employer, their carrier, their insurance carrier is one of these big for-profit insurance companies. It's not, a it's not a business, by the way, that's growing for them. Uh, even when I was at Cigna, the way that the companies really gained membership in employer-sponsored health insurance is by stealing market share from each other. Uh, we just simply are not growing there because insurance companies have priced their products out of the reach of so many employers uh, to the point that the majority of small businesses with 50 or fewer workers now offer uh, insurance to their workers. So we've got that situation, but as broken as that system is, uh, it's still profitable for the big for-profit insurance companies, so they will resist it. I do think that employers are beginning to wake up and realize they've been sold a bill of goods over many years, mm. not all of them, uh, many of them have very tight relationships with their broker or consultant uh, and their insurance carrier, personal relationships uh, mm -hmm. that have uh, been in the way of, uh, of moving beyond uh, the employer-sponsored system. Uh, I do think that it's possible, but it's going to take uh, a lot of effort on the part of advocates and policymakers to make yeah. a shift. Yeah. I recall the Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz, saying that Starbucks spends more on health care for employees than coffee beans. Yeah. And you, 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 you hear that over time. Uh, years ago, uh, GM said the same thing. Mm. Uh, and probably, I'm sure it's the case today that at General Motors and most big employers or many big employers, they're spending more on health benefits for their workers uh, yeah. than they are for their core business. Uh, it's just incredible what uh, those employers have been willing to put up with. Now, mm -hmm. uh, the thing is, because of the way federal law is structured, these companies get tax breaks for offering benefits. So uh, they don't want to lose that. And that's another reason why we've uh, we've still got this uh, this system in place. Yeah. So it's they're pre-tax dollars that can be used towards the health plan. And you don't have that same benefit if you're someone who is buying insurance independently. Exactly. You don't yeah. have the same setup. Uh, now, a lot of people who do buy their coverage independently because of the Affordable Care Act, uh, they are in many cases eligible for subsidies. Mm -hmm. uh, those subsidies go straight to the insurance companies. They don't go to the to the member or the, the patient. But yeah. uh, 
that's the only way that that market can work is with these subsidies because once again these companies these insurance companies have jacked up premiums so much that people just simply can't afford to pay their premiums much lesser out-of-pocket expenses without significant support from the federal government and that means taxpayers yeah isn't this regressive allowing health insurance premiums to be excluded from income resulting in these tax expenditures that are inequitably concentrated in higher income individuals, employees. Yep. Yeah. It's ex- extremely regressive. Yeah. Uh, what you have is a situation in which uh, the biggest <laughs> companies uh, benefit. They're able to do this year after year. Small businesses, not so much. Uh, even those small businesses that offer insurance, they are typically facing even higher premium increases year after year. And they find themselves having to shift more of the cost of care uh, before their coverage kicks in, in the form of deductibles, co-insurance, and co-payments. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah. it's very regressive and very unfair for most employers. But, uh, you know, the big employers have the loudest voice and the most uh, impact and the most influence in Washington. Yeah. It's actually surprising given our nation's obsession and pride in entrepreneurship that we would Dis, put put a disadvantage on small businesses. You know, we have that pride. We have the belief that America is a place where uh, we really care about entrepreneurship and small businesses. But the fact is, uh, the United States is no longer the company that is most conducive, most uh, able in which uh, small businesses and would-be entrepreneurs are able to make it primarily because of uh, health insurance. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a lot of people obviously work for companies that don't have, don't offer health insurance. So their resort, you know, they, 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 they can get coverage because of the Affordable Care Act through yeah. marketplaces. But uh, it's, it's an extraordinarily expensive and regressive system that we have yeah. overall. On the positive side, since the ACA, we've had had a decrease in uninsured individuals. That's a win, right? It's been a significant win, yeah. and that was what uh, was the main benefit, frankly. Well, not the, I would say it's the main benefit, but there are almost uh, as important benefits uh, to that. For one, insurance companies can no longer engage in some of the practices that were very routine, very common before the ACA was passed, like refusing to sell coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. Uh, mm-hmm. They just blackball people because yeah. they'd been sick in the past, uh, or dropping them once they got sick. That was a Ugh. very prevalent practice as well, too. Uh, they can't do that now. But uh, I knew when the, the, the law was passed, which I supported, by the way, but I knew that these companies would try to figure out other ways to make sure that their profit margins didn't take a hit. Mm-hmm. And they've been able to do that. Yeah. I assume they do benefit by having more more folks on plans. And also, you don't have that adverse selection of who is opting into health insurance. Exactly. They, they benefit, and so do uh, individuals yeah. and families, because they are at long last able to get coverage uh, and affordable coverage, thanks again to the subsidies from taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a, a huge, huge win. The problem, uh, and I think almost as bad as the problem of people not having insurance, and keep in mind, we still have about 30 million people in this country who don't have health insurance. And um, uh, many of them would like to be covered, but they just don't have the money or even know that they have subsidies that could be available to them. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned some of the tactics that were used before the ACA to 
help <laughs> the health plans make more money by denying care. Are there tactics employed today by health insurance companies that are still allowing them to deny coverage or limit benefits for policyholders? Oh, absolutely. There are different ways. And they fall under the umbrella of benefit buy-down. That's a term you, you don't hear very often, maybe ever. It's a term that's used uh, frequently uh, behind closed doors at insurance companies and in conversations that executives have with Wall Street financial analysts mm. and shareholders. That is a term that covers a lot of sins. What it means is that year after year, the value of our health insurance plans, it diminishes uh, either in, in one way or another. And insurance companies have become very adept in reducing the value of insurance companies. One is uh, by making people pay a lot more out of their own pockets for coverage that they used, you know, for, for claims that they used to cover. And um, also prior authorization, which is increasingly in the news. Uh, it is, uh, it's become uh, a, a tactic that insurance companies have made aggressive use of. Mm. Uh, which inserts them uh, right smack dab between patients and their doctors. Yeah. And uh, can you explain? Yeah, can you explain what prior authorization means? Yeah, and and I appreciate the opportunity because most people just simply do not know that it even exists or that's a, it's a thing. Some people uh, clearly, many people have gotten uh, notices from their insurance company or through their doctor uh, or the hospital that what the doctor is recommending, the insurance company has decided they will not cover. Mm. And they have many different reasons for doing that. Often it is just to uh, see if they can get away with it. They know that most people don't, again, know about prior authorization or even know that they have the right to appeal a denial or you know something that's, that's been refused. And um, so uh, people just leave money on the table. Uh, if but on the other hand, keep in mind that a lot of people are just sick <laughs> when, they, uh, when, when they're uh, getting these notices of something being denied and are not able to be champions for themselves and often don't have a family member or a friend who can advocate for them. Uh, so it really works for the insurance company. Uh, and sadly, uh, so many people go without getting the care that they need because of this practice. Uh, and uh, in many cases, when they do, they'll have to pay a lot out of their own pockets. And many people wind up deep in debt. Uh, we mm -hmm. have 100 million people in this country who have medical debt. And uh, most of the vast majority of those people have health insurance. It just shows you how the <laughs> how, how coverage has changed even since the Affordable Care Act was passed. It's yeah. one of those examples of of how these companies have protected their profit margins by shifting more and more of the cost of care to us. Yeah. We had the CEO of RIP Medical Debt on the show a few weeks ago, and um, we're an incredible organization, but wish it didn't have to exist. It shouldn't have to exist. Yeah. There are a number of organizations that exist that uh, in a real world, in a good world <laughs> in this country, they would not exist. Yeah. Uh, another organization that shouldn't exist but does and had a big impact on on my decision to leave the industry is a, 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 a non-profit called Remote Area Medical, which uh, operates free clinics around the country. started out just op operating, operating clinics in uh, third world countries, uh, yeah. flying doctors to Haiti and other places. And then they started getting requests to have these, they call them expeditions, but they're just really pop-up clinics around the country in which people can come and get care that doesn't cost them anything. But it, we shouldn't have that no. either. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. first time I encountered them, 
the remote area medical was at a county fairgrounds and people were getting and they still do to this day get uh, care that's being provided in barns and animal stalls on county fairgrounds. Uh. Uh, that's that's the United States for you. And yeah. uh, RIP medical debt is uh, really keeping a lot of people out of bankruptcy, uh, paying off debts that uh, they just simply can't do that. But, you you know, it's it's the way it's structured and it's no fault of their own. But they you cannot apply to RIP medical debt to have your debt uh, erased. Uh, they work with hospitals to buy debt and pay it off. It's just mm-hmm. a bizarre system. Really, really important for the people who benefit from it, but uh, it's uh, it's not an ideal situation by any means. Yeah. I have one more question on the payer side, and then I do want to talk about the documentary and more on the provider side. But when it comes to private for-profit health plans and the problem that they have created uh, for our health system, do you think that the industry can fix itself do you think it needs to be re- like regulated in a new way, or do you think private health plans should be eliminated altogether? Well, they, the the industry will not fix itself. These companies okay. uh, uh, are <laughs> beholden to Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I've for ten years I handled financial communications for Cigna. Uh, my name was on every one of the company's mm. quarterly earnings reports for ten years. So I know how these companies make money and and what's important to them and the links they go to to make sure that they don't disappoint Wall Street's financial analysts who cover these companies or their shareholders. Those are the stakeholders that they care most about. It's not employers. It's not us as individuals or our families. So when you've got that dynamic, there's just simply no way that uh, these companies will police themselves. No one company in this system can venture very far afield from the way their competitors operate, or they would risk getting more people who are sick and uh, uh, would cost them more money. So because of the way the current system is structured, we're going to have to have some disruption. And I think disruption can occur actually in the private sector, but we're also going to need some attention from policymakers at both the state and federal levels to try to move us toward the, the the place we need to be. Do you think there's a chance we would have a, a option, a, a government option for everyone, a, me- a Medicare for all, and perhaps people would choose that option because it could be better, lower cost, less scammy? You know, I, I, think, it, I think if we did open up Medicare, we first have to improve it. Uh, but I think, uh, I think more people would indeed sign up for Medicare. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years who've counted the days, months, mm-hmm. and years un, uh, until they're eligible for Medicare. Uh, so it's a very popular program, and most of them are are wanting to enroll in the traditional program, which we can talk about more if you want to about how that is different from the so-called Medicare Advantage plans. Yeah, uh, I think uh, it's possible that we could have more public plans available to people. Some states have actually passed uh, laws that enable people to enroll at the state level in a state-based public option. Uh, Mm -hmm. Three states that I know of, Washington, Colorado, and Nevada, have uh, established public options. They they vary in detail, but uh, Mm -hmm. it it is something that's available to folks in those states. And more and more states are looking at that. It's not it's not the same as expanding the Medicare program, but it is expanding and policing 
these companies are making, giving people an option that they otherwise wouldn't have, which I think is very important. And presumably whoever's running it isn't making $181 million a year. Well, that's that's that exactly <laughs> right. When, when you have someone making that kind of money, uh, you know uh, you know where their priorities are. Yeah. And, and you know that that's costing taxpayers a yeah. lot more money than it should. Yeah, that's a lot of primary care visits for a lot it of people. It absolutely is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and just imagine that even that much money would help alleviate so many out-of-pocket expenses that Mm. people people face. We'll be right back after the break. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I really want to talk about your new documentary. I watched it last night. I saw Elizabeth Rosenthal in it. She Mm. was a guest on the podcast last year. Tell us about what kind of started this whole project and just give us the pitch for it. This is the fourth documentary that I've uh, been a (laughs) co-producer of. And uh, the uh, my my partner in this, and there are several people we worked with, but the uh, executive producer is a businessman in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. His name is Richard Master, and Richard has a very successful business in Eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, but he began to notice that he was just paying so much money, both for insurance premiums or his what he contributed to premiums for his employees. Uh, but he was also seeing that. Drug prices were really, really high, even with insurance. Uh, His employees were having to pay a lot of money out of pocket. So he just began to spend more time investigating what other countries have done, uh, what could and should be done to fix our healthcare system. And he's been a champion for reform for a long time. Uh, The first in a series, this is, as I said, the fourth in a series of, of documentaries. The others have looked at pharmaceutical prices, and just the system as a whole. The first one was called Fix-It Healthcare. And frankly, it did advocate for a Medicare for all type of healthcare system. Now, I think you would say that uh, our approach is saying that's not the only way to get uh, to a system that we need. What our ultimate objective is in this country is universal coverage and a system that is better able to control healthcare costs and make sure people have access to quality care we don't have that in the current healthcare system by any means. Uh, so, uh, and, I, and Medicare for all or single payer healthcare is a as an important way and has the support of many many people. 
but I would argue that there there are some other approaches that can get us closer to that uh, that overall objective. Yeah. One of the things that has been discussed recently is within the hospital provider network, nonprofit hospitals have been found to have actually worse ratios of charity care to total expenses than even for-profit hospitals. And so they've, they perhaps, and Elizabeth Rosenthal has talked about this is perhaps they've gotten a pass. Like it's easy to point fingers at the health plans who have CEOs making hundreds of millions of dollars, but should we take a look at the hospitals? And while, well, providers themselves, doctors and nurses have sacrificed a ton over the past, especially over the past three years. You know, if 86% of nonprofit hospitals aren't providing as much charity care as the value of their tax exemption, are they really for profit? It's a good point. Um, they, they maintain their nonprofit tax exempt status, but you're exactly right. Um, a lot of the, the so-called nonprofit hospitals, and I think a better term really is to call them tax exempt, Uh, are not fulfilling their community benefit. These entities, these hospitals are supposed to, by law, uh, set aside a certain amount of money to improve the health and well-being of people who live in in their communities. And we're seeing that they're, in many cases, not getting anywhere close to fulfilling that obligation. So, uh, uh, and it's absurd when you have for-profit hospitals in a community providing more care, doing a better job of taking care of the health of people in the communities than the they're the nonprofit uh, versions of hospitals. Uh, it's 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 really messed up, and uh, uh, we hope that this this documentary will help wake policymakers up and employers. Hospital care is the main is, is the chief uh, driver of healthcare costs in this country. Wow. About a third of what we spend on healthcare goes to cover hospital care, and uh, drug prices are high, but comprise yeah. drugs comprise a, a relatively small percentage, much less than 30%. I think it's already more than 10% or 10 to 15%. Yeah. Uh, but as Elizabeth Rosenthal, uh, Rosenthal said, uh, hospitals have largely gotten off scot-free. She uses yeah. that, that phrase yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And in many cases, it's, it's true. We've had a situation in which drug companies have been, I call it, drug companies have been in the barrel on Capitol yeah. Hill in Washington yeah. for now several years. And it seems like it, we, the, uh, in, in Congress, they can only focus on one part of the healthcare system at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a consequence, <laughs> we've had, uh, and we have had movement uh, on, on, on drug prices. We finally got legislation that enables Medicare to begin to negotiate for lower prices for prescription drugs. Uh, we've not had anywhere close to that kind of scrutiny of hospitals. Uh, when the Affordable Care Act was being debated, there was a lot of scrutiny on insurance companies. That, too, diminished by by comparison. Uh, so drug companies, they replaced insurance companies in that barrel. Uh, and they, too, have not had very much attention focused on them over the past several years. But hospitals really have, in many cases, gotten off scot-free. And among the reasons for that is that uh, hospitals are, are everywhere. They are... Uh, big uh, components, big employers in most communities. They are well connected with uh, people that represent us in Congress and the state legislature or locally. So they've got immense power. And, uh, yeah. uh, and, and most people don't really understand that uh, hospital care is you know, the principal driver of health care costs. 
but not just hospital care. It's it's the administrative costs as well. I'm Absolutely. trying to remember the stat. Someone Good said point. that within hospitals, there are some hospitals where there's a person in billing, one person in working in billing for every bed. Was that what? Do you remember that stat? That was. Yeah, shared? that's 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 right. And sometimes it can be even more. <laughs> and in uh, and, and their defense, okay. you, you have that situation because we have multiple private insurance companies in any mm. given market. Many of them are for profits, like we've been talking about. Some uh, insurance companies still operate also on a nonprofit basis. All of those companies have multiple variations of health benefit plans. So yeah. hospitals and doctor off- doctor's offices and clinics have to staff up considerably to do nothing yeah. more day in and day out, but to deal with all of this and try to make sure that they're paid appropriately, that they're that the patients are are getting the care that they need and not having to be saddled with 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 too much debt. So uh, that's that's one of the reasons. I don't I don't think hospitals, uh, in the absence of that kind of a situation, would need. I know they wouldn't. They wouldn't need to have that kind of administrative staff. Yeah. So why don't we just say? You know, you have your charge master and everybody pays that and no one pays less, no one pays more. Well, you can get there. Uh, and as we note in the movie, at least one state has been able to demonstrate that that can happen. You, uh, What we need, uh, I think universally in this country, is a situation in which everybody knows how much procedure is going to cost in a given hospital. Yeah. Uh, and that cost uh, applies whether you're uninsured or get your coverage through the so-called Obamacare marketplaces or through Medicare, Medicaid, or an employer. Uh, We don't have that. Everybody, all those entities, all those payers, if you will, pay a different price. And it's based on, uh, at least when it comes to private insurers, how successful they are or, you know, the outcome of their negotiations with individual hospitals. And it varies, and you don't have any transparency into that significant transparency. That is beginning to change. There is uh, laws have been passed just recently that require hospitals to be more transparent when it comes to their uh, how much they they charge and yeah. you know how they negotiate with with uh, insurance companies. But we still will that didn't fix the problem of having these big variations in prices. Yeah. And the transparency around charge masters is a relatively new policy, right? That it was is. It's just very in new. the last, yeah. But it's, it's still it's new. still not easy to find. It's, still it's not, not easy, easy to, to find. Out. And even no. uh, even when the data began began to be available, even researchers couldn't make heads or tails of it. And uh, I mean, we're doing better, but uh, it's extraordinarily complicated, and that kind of information rarely reaches the patient. Uh, I would say that there are very few people listening who uh, would know that information is available, where to go look for it, and if they found it, how to make sense of it. Yeah. Your career has been in healthcare, but it's been so different, right? You were on the inside, and now you're really one of the most vocal advocates working on healthcare reform and transformation. Tell us about what happened to you when you spoke out against, we initially left your job and spoke out against the system. Uh, what was going on in your head? How afraid were you? And then how has that journey kind of transformed as you've now settled into your job as a whistleblower and advocate? 
You know, when I decided to do what I did, which was to become a whistleblower, and by the way, it was against the entire industry. It was not necessarily, and it wasn't against uh, Signal or Humana where I'd worked, because I became very much aware that uh, mm. these practices were industry-wide. So my whistleblowing was on the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said earlier, no one company can really vary all that much from 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 uh, its competitors. I began to see things that most employees of insurance companies don't see. Very few people anywhere see uh, with the uh, responsibilities that I was given. I had visibility into the finances of, of my company. I had to understand them, as I said, to be able to uh, explain them to reporters who might call. But I also had an orientation to Washington. Uh, my team and I wrote the talking points for our lobbyist. I spent a lot of time in New York and Washington uh, during my career. So I was in this unique position to be able to see how these companies operate, but also how they spend a lot of our money on PR campaigns and lobbying campaigns and campaign contributions to protect their profits. And then I saw, as I mentioned earlier, this event in near where I grew up in Tennessee, this remote area medical expedition at a county fairground. I went there, I went to Tennessee to visit my family. I live in Philadelphia, uh, but this was several years ago, back in 2007, actually. And I went down there to visit my parents who were still alive at the time. And I read about this expedition being held pretty close by. And I borrowed dad's car and, and drove up there just completely out of curiosity. And I saw something I couldn't have imagined seeing in this country. I had been insulated and isolated from uh, the way so many people experience our healthcare system. Uh, and I realized when I walked through the when I walked through the fairground gates that day, I saw people who were lined up by the hundreds in the in the rain, waiting to get care that was being provided literally in animal stalls. And it just uh, it changed me. And I made a, mm. a decision that day that I would I would have to find another way to earn a living. I had to accept wow. that I had to take some responsibility for that because I was a propagandist. I, uh, in various ways. Uh, was uh, trying to make people believe that we have the best healthcare system in the world and the way that we pay for it is superior and uh, defending my company and the industry. I couldn't do that anymore. And I realized if, if you know, if my parents hadn't been able to save some money, they were, I grew up in a working class family. I was just really fortunate to be able to go to college and get a, a good job. I never imagined uh, having a career in the insurance business that just kind of happened over time. But uh, I knew that if it hadn't been for them, my parents, I could have been one of those people standing in, in those lines. And I'm sure there were people there that day that uh, were neighbors of my parents, uh, people I could have gone to school with. So I, I, I just felt I, that, was a, uh, that was a crisis of conscience that, I, mm. that I'm telling you about, that I've often used that term. And a few months later, I did did leave my my job. There were two or three other things that happened during that time. I've sometimes said my my decision was was both gradual and and sudden. Uh, the gradual part of it was what I was referring to. I was able to see how these companies really operate, and I ultimately felt that Congress needed to know this. The only thing that members of Congress really know about health insurance companies, for the most part, many of them, is what they hear from health insurance company lobbyists. And insurance companies have legions, legions of lobbyists. Just Cigna alone has a robust government affairs staff in Washington, but keeps many companies on retainer, Uh, some that are close to Democrats, some that are close to Republicans. 
I knew all this. And so part of the work that I do now, I call making amends or trying to for all the work that I did to try to help people understand this is how what's really going on. This is why your premiums are so high. Uh, and this is why it's so hard to get meaningful change uh, through Congress. Yeah. What advice do you have for others working in healthcare and getting disillusioned by what they're seeing? My advice is to save some money if you possibly can. <laughs> don't spend it all. Don't go into debt so yeah. that you... As long as you don't have a health care issue come up. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's important if you're looking to do what I did to yeah. feel that you can pull it off. In other words, I knew when I did this that there was no chance I was going to get a job offer mm. working in the insurance industry. <laughs> There's no going back. No going back. No, I, I, was, I was torching a lot of bridges. But not only that, I didn't think, and I'm sure it's probably the case, that when you're a whistleblower, you're not likely to be hired by any uh, mm. corporation. So that door kind of closes. And so people need to know going into something like this. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, a lot of people become whistleblowers. That's, that's really going uh, an extra step. But I do hope people will listen to their conscience and to... Uh, if 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 they think that what they're doing is not right, if the company that they're working for is uh, cheating people, uh, is in one way or another making it more difficult for people to get the care that they need and can afford, then you've got a problem. You've got a, a problem. You should have a crisis of conscience, I think, as well. And uh, uh, I, I hope more people will will begin to speak out. And they are. I uh, write a, I, I founded and edit a newsletter called Healthcare Uncovered. And um, a number of people have stepped up who are insiders or former insiders to either publicly or anonymously tell their stories about what they do uh, and did when they were in the industry. So there is there are more people who are feeling bolder and are willing to step out. But most people are just too fearful. And Mm. And I get that because yeah. you do worry that you're just not going to be able to uh, make a living to continue your lifestyle as you as you want it to be. Uh, I would say, and I maybe I'm an anomaly, but I'm much happier, and I've figured oh, out good. a way to, <laughs> you know, to do meaningful work. At least I think yeah. my work is meaningful, and I'm much happier. I work harder, but I it's hardly work to me. It's just. Mm. Uh, it's it's what I feel that I'm on this earth to do now. I yeah. think uh, I I had to spend those twenty years in the industry. I was a I was a reporter in my first career. I was a newspaper reporter in in Tennessee, and then later in in Washington. One of the other things I realized when I was at that expedition and and that I, I mentioned uh, was that what I was doing for a living was the exact opposite of what I tried to do as a journalist. I never tried to mislead people or to leave out important details. That's exactly what I was doing and paid quite well to do uh, during my 20 years in the industry. So sometimes I say that I've spent 20 years inside the insurance industry un, uh, undercover to uh, <laughs> uh, now go back into journalism and, and uh, report on what I, what I did and what I yeah. learned. Well, how can people follow you on you know, social media online and how can they watch the film? Thank you. The, I would hope people would try to find my newsletter. It's on the Substack platform. You can find me at wendellpotter.substack.com. I'm on Twitter at Wendell Potter. And um, 
go to fixithealthcare.com because you can see information about the hospital movie and the other movies that I mentioned earlier. And please reach out if you would like to have a screening of the movie or just share information with us. Please do that. The movie premiered uh, several weeks ago, but we're still having screenings of it around the country. It will soon be available uh, uh, to stream uh, on and also video on demand. So we will uh, uh, it will be able to make sure that more people can see it in the in the weeks ahead. We also want to have a screening on Capitol Hill. That's in the works. Mm. Uh, we've we've had a, a the, actually the movie premiered in Washington, but it was downtown, and we're working with members of Congress to host a screening on Capitol Hill. Great. Awesome. Well, Wendell, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.